Welcome back, everyone, to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm assistant sports editor Mark Faulkner, joined by beat reporter Ted Colfin. Coming up, we have an interview with former NHL referee Paul Stewart. He talks about former Red Wings draft pick, former MSU defenseman, Wes McCauley, who's been voted the best referee by the players. Stewart also talks about his rocky relationship with former Red Wings captain Steve Eisenman. But first, Ted, we're about five weeks away now from a possible start of the NHL season. Keep your fingers crossed, Mark. Keep your fingers crossed. Hey, Absolutely. Let's hope. Where do we stand heading into the weekend, and what are the odds of a possible vote by the end of next week? Well, they appear good, Mark, but just as a sideways to that, I mean, with these mm-hmm. cases surging and all over North America. Well, I don't know about you, but January 13th seems a little optimistic. I mean, I thought the stuff that would still need to be put in place. I still, I kind of think February 1st might be a little bit more reasonable, right? You get, I think COVID is kind of still the major problem in all of this, obviously, as it's been for nine months. But then again, going back to the original question, I think we are going to, and it certainly looks like they're, you know, both sides want to start this. They want to play, but boy, boy there are a lot of obstacles that I'm, as I'm sure we're going to go over here in the next few minutes. I mean, you hope, I think everybody wants to see some hockey at this point, And I think we will. It's just a matter of, boy, overcoming so many more issues before we can get this settled. Although the major issue of economics suddenly just evaporated. That was kind of interesting. What do you make of that? The players standing firm and saying no more, no more concessions. We're already giving like 20% with escrow and 10% deferrals. Are, were you a little surprised that the NHL and Bettman uh, backed down on that? Well, Mark, were you? I mean, were you? I, I certainly was. I didn't really believe that Bettman, that was a hard sell because that was a, that's a signed, sealed uh, and delivered uh, contract and to come back and ask for another three hundred million dollars. Uh, what did you think, Ted? I, that didn't really sound. I was just fast. I was just fascinated. They just said, okay, we're good. You know, we tried. Yeah. We tried to t- extract three hundred million dollars from you, and okay, you, you, obviously you're not going to do that. So yeah, well, we're good. Let's just go on to the other issues. I don't. Maybe I'm not a business major, but boy, I, that just. That kind of was a strange proposition all the way around. It's a major obstacle that they overcame. And mm-hmm. all the stuff, although it's a lot of hard work, they can get the other stuff done. But it certainly surprised me. And to a certain point, baffled me a little mm-hmm. bit. It seemed like they were dead set on extracting those other um, provisions from the players, which, yeah, I, you know what? I mean, considering they had a signed, sealed agreement. Yeah. It took a lot of chutzpah to do that, but evidently, I don't know, maybe it was just a, a some sort of ploy that didn't work, and well, let's get on to the hockey. Ted, where do you think Christopher Illich comes down on this potential uh, new agreement? Last week on the Forbes list, the Wings value dropped 3%, but it's still at $775 million, and on the business side, the Illiches, they've had furloughs and layoffs just like everybody right. else. But do the economics add up 
for Illich, the NHL knows they're going to go down the road of 50-50. So they're, they're going to – the players are going to have to pay back the money. What are your thoughts, though? Because we really don't know where Christopher Illich stands on these issues. I still think for the Red Wings organization, the Illich Empire, I think, I think mm-hmm. they're fine with this agreement. I really do. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, you still have that Little Caesars arena, which is – such a money maker when things are going well. I mean, we saw events there every night, basically, during the heyday. Um, I think the NA, I think they're fine with it, Mark. I don't know mm. about you, but I, I don't think they're one of the still such a bigger. The Detroit's market for hockey is still so thriving, so energized, a lot of passion amongst Red Wings fans. They're going to buy their tickets. Uh, I don't think the Red Wings are one of the teams that are against this agreement, although I would suspect there are quite a few organizations that pro- that aren't fans of that new CBA that they they made over the summer. And look, a lot of teams are not going to make much money. Well, a lot of teams are going to lose money with no fans in the stands here this season. Mm-hmm. The Red Wings won't be one of them, though. I don't think at all by any stretch. Ted, what about division alignment? We talked about this. The Wings will probably be in some kind of division with teams like Chicago and Columbus. One plan has each of the 31 teams starting in their own buildings, maybe some hybrid bubbles or hub city. Some teams, of course, can't play in the provinces or states that they're in. Exactly. Uh, your travel plans will be up in the air. You could be <laughs> at Little Caesars when Chicago comes in for a weekend series, and then you could be in Columbus for a, a series against the Blue Jackets on a Friday, Saturday. What are your thoughts about this alignment and what it means for their wings? Mark, I don't know if you've tried. I've tried to just doodle these realignments and what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to get it right i mean the way trying to okay you're going to have that seven team all canadian division and that's although that that presents problems in itself you got vancouver out there in their own time zone that's going to be an issue Mm -hmm. oh but when you try to fit all those 24 other teams into neat three three neat eight team divisions in ge- with you know more geography based, it's impossible. You just cannot do it. It's just not a neat break for everybody. They they had a, what they had the an original plan with maybe Minnesota going to the Pacific and Dallas mm-hmm. Pacific. Yeah, Louis. No wait, St. St. Louis. Yep, going into the Pac- Minnesota going into the Central, and then St. Louis and Dallas going to the Pacific, but. Lo and behold, there's a lot of talk as we tape this this morning that there's a lot of pushback, and I guess we're going to see Minnesota maybe going into the Minnesota and St. Louis going into the Pacific and Dallas going into the Central because of the travel involved there. And there might be some more, evidently, there might be a couple more tweaks in the other two divisions too. So Mm -hmm. it's it's going to be impossible to please everybody. From a competitive standpoint, I mean, right now it looks like that Atlantic division, the East Coast division, that's going to be a bear of a division. I mean, if only the top four make it, mm-hmm. there's going to be some good teams that may miss the playoffs. 
On the flip side, that division, the wings appear to they're going to be in that central division. I don't know. You got looks like you're probably going to have Tampa and Carolina in there, and those are two good teams. But after that, mm-hmm. it's a lot of mediocrity, somewhat. So, I don't know. From a competitive standpoint, that's going to be an issue. I mean, some teams, are going to, some divisions, are going to be much more stronger. And that Canadian division looks like it's going to be a bear of a division too. But uh, I mean, I, rivalries for sure will be fostered. I mean, if you're only going to play a team's in the division, what eight or nine times? That's gonna, mm, yeah, that definitely. <laughs> you're gonna see a lot of bitter people playing <laughs> as the year goes on. I don't think you're gonna. It just let's try to get through this season. Well, there are so many issues, even with the uh, the border issues and essential. That's travel. another one, sure. Absolutely. Like, for example, a small little detail that we, you and I talked about earlier. What if Steve Eisenman wants to make a trade? with a team in the Canadian division, there would be a mm-hmm. two week quarantine. So you'd make a right. trade and that player wouldn't be available. And already the league and the PA, they have talked about no limits about trades and moving across the border, but there's so many issues, Ted expanded rosters, taxi squads. When will fans be allowed back? Do you, do you see fans coming back like 20% of fans allowed into Little Caesars halfway through the season, maybe it's not going to start that way. It's all dependent no. on COVID, right? There were three thousand yeah, exactly, deaths Mark. yesterday. I mean, right? I mean, let's. I think let, let's hope. I mean, let's hope that it'll it'll be like that. But you're right, absolutely right. I mean, right now, if it starts close to mid to end January, I can't see any fans getting in there for quite a long time, um, and it's. It's it's just gonna. I I think everybody's just at that point. Let's just get through this season, and let's get to a sense of normalcy. Come next September, October, eighty-two game season, fans in the stands. Let's just get through this. I mean, it's gonna be a lot. It's gonna be a lot of headaches for everybody involved. But I don't know. I, I think both sides are willing to put up with it just to get through this season. In a few minutes, Ted, will take a look at your story on the free agents who are still out there and could be of interest to Steve Eiserman before training camp. But first, here's that interview with former NHL referee Paul Stewart. Joining us now is former NHL referee Paul Stewart, the first American-born referee to officiate in 1,000 NHL games from 1986 to 2003, and the first American to make it to the NHL as both a player and a referee. Paul, welcome to the podcast. We're doing a story on NHL referee Wes McCauley, a former Michigan State Spartans defenseman drafted by the Detroit Red Wings, and he's back in the final right now working the Tampa Bay Dallas series. You knew Wes's father, John McCauley, an NHL referee who worked 442 games and became the NHL's director of officiating. In fact, Paul, he had such an influence on your career, your life, that you named your oldest son Macaulay. When did you first meet John Macaulay? I first met John Macaulay in New York in 1976. I was playing uh, Mm -hmm. as a rookie with the New York Rangers, and we were playing an exhibition game against the Flyers. I bought $800 worth of tickets for all my family and friends and uh, started, my defense partner was Nick Beverly, and I was out against uh, uh, Bob Kelly and, and some of the other 
flyers that I had known when I was a student at University of Pennsylvania and they practiced at our rink. I lasted 81 seconds in that game, and John <laughs> threw me out. <laughs> Cost me 800 for the tickets and another 800 at two chores to buy everybody dinner. <laughs> what, what did you do to get thrown out, Paul, after well, 81 I, seconds? I fought a fellow, and I think he was from uh, Michigan, uh, a fellow by the name of Steve uh, Short. It was a big kid, and he had been a, a high draft pick of the Flyers. And I had knocked Bob Kelly down in the corner with the body check and uh, went to the front of the net, and Short came after me and threw the gloves. And I bopped him a couple and knocked him flat, and I grabbed the back of his sweater to pull him up to hit him again, but I, I accidentally, unfortunately, grabbed the back of his hair. And it was <laughs> a rule uh, about that. I, I, I wasn't like how it that I, you know, I grabbed the hair and started smacking. It was just inadvertent. But John McCauley said to me, sorry, I got to throw you. It was yeah. a new, it was a new rule that year. It was the Howitt rule actually. And on the way out, I, I challenged the Flyers bench. And I always <laughs> think uh, that, you know, it's ironic the, 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 the twist of fate that John McCauley was the fellow who, who helped later in my life save me and give me new direction. And at the beginning of my playing career, he, he was the fellow that tossed me. I, I always think that had I stayed in that game and shown well, and I had been playing well in that one shift, that, mm -hmm. that maybe uh, New York would have, would have kept me and uh, myself and Nick Fatiu, and we would have cleaned up that, that whole uh, attitude of the, fly, uh, of the Rangers, which was, you know, that they were bon vivant and playboys and having fun on Broadway and all that stuff. Paul, you mentioned the twist of fate. How did John McCauley uh, help you find a new direction? Well, in later years, I went down to uh, the American League to play in Binghamton. And mm -hmm. John had been injured uh, after a, a, a Russian game at Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve. And it was interesting because he, he got sucker punched by a fan in a bar. And he went down for rehab and again, there I am. And again, I did my thing and started a, a little brouhaha. And when he tossed me from that game on the way out, he said, come <laughs> see me after the game's over. And I went around to his dressing room after the third period. And he said to me, you know, he said, you've got the bloodlines. You, you should come think about joining us uh, being a referee when, when you're finished. And I said, I'll give it a thought. And ironically, I, I, I saw Scotty Morrison in Philadelphia. I, again, got tossed out of an American League game. <laughs> and <laughs> seems like that was a constant. And I saw him up there, and we talked. And he talked about my grandfather. And he said to me, you know, if you ever think about it, you know, give us a call. And, and years later, as, as my life uh, evaporated from what it was to what it was about to become, um, I, I did call Scotty and then John McCauley appeared again in my life. And uh, I have a, a word that's ironic when I think of Wes and I think of his brothers and sister and, mm -hmm. and, and his mother and, and his, all of his family. I have great regret when I think of the McCauleys because I'm so sad that John passed away at an early age. It was the saddest day of my life more so than my own parents, because my parents were older and they had lived a life and John had so much promise. 
And the other part of it is that I regret that I only got a chance to work one game with Wes because I, I see how he is mm-hmm. and I get, a, I get a kick out of the way he referees and <laughs> I think we would have been pretty good together. <laughs> Dynamic duo. Tell us about that game with Wes McCauley. One game, your 1,000th game. Why did that game mean so much to you? I felt it was coming full circle. Mm-hmm. When, when I first started to officiate in 1983, after my, you know, slowly um, corroding <laughs> playing career, and I finished up as a Cape Cod Buccaneer and a, and a Mohawk Valley Comet and, you know, filling in here and getting 500 bucks for this and 200 for that. And basically, I started to referee and I was coaching high school hockey. I, I had the opportunity to, to get to the NHL training camp after Bruce Hood's school, which Scotty sent me to, and John met me there. And I went to the NHL training camp, and they put me through a, a regime of, of working in every league. I, at one point, I was working five leagues, the OHL, the Western League, the IHL, the uh, ECAC, and, and uh, the American League. And that's a lot of rule books and a lot of travel. I had one trip, 37 games and 39 nights in 37 different cities all across Canada and getting there by all different means, except for kayak. I I, I think I took everything, but John McCauley said, I'm going to make you a referee or I'm going to kill you. And he had the ability and it's a unique ability as a leader and as a teacher and a mentor to make you never want to be in a position where you disappointed him. Okay. And if you watch the movie 12 o'clock high, when when Gregory Peck became the commander of that group, he, he instilled pride in the group so that the last thing any guy in that group wanted to do was be left on the ground. And that's how I felt about John McCauley. So to that end, I had barely worked, uh, th- you know, three years in the minors and then the juniors isn't very long in comparison to what others have had. And all of a sudden, one night in Boston, March 26th, 86, Montreal's playing Boston, and it's a tight game. It's the end of the season. And Dave Newell, who was also a great friend of mine, got hurt. And I was sitting in the press box, had never worked in the NHL. And guess what? He tapped me on the hand and said, mm-hmm. get, get dressed. And he had confidence in me and gave me that. And then the next summer – the Canada Cup happened in 87, and I had only worked a half of one game in the NHL. <laughs> and I worked the finals of the Canada Cup because John McCauley and Scotty Morrison and Frank Advari and Rene Fazel, the IIHF president, had confidence in the way that I worked, and they made me feel like those fellas in the 918th bomb group. The last thing I wanted to do was let them down. And fast forward 20 years later, I'm at my thousandth game. And I thought that it was a a great twist to be able to say that, you know, once we've been on this carousel that we've come around to the point now that I can pay back John McCauley. And I, I insisted that Wes work my thousandth game with me. And it, it was, it was not, rubber stamped. I had mm-hmm. to, I had to fight for it, but I had enough drag 
with the league, with with the commissioner, with the assistant commissioner, and I I finally uh, I went to, I even talked to Harry Sinden about it, and you know Harry's a real hockey guy, and I admire and, and respect him, and the fact is that they saw the, the whole story with West being there, mm-hmm. and that at so for two periods we refereed the game, and the third period started it was my last period, and. I went to center ice and I called Wes over and I handed him the puck because now it's his turn. And uh, that's the way it went. What does it mean to see Wes now uh, at the pinnacle of the, of uh, his profession? Well, in the Montreal dress room and in the hockey hall of fame, they have a, a, another like reproduction of the Montreal dress room up on the wall is Flanders fields, the poem and to you from failing hands, the torch is passed. And I, I, in a small way, but more so in, in a larger way, his, his father and all of the other officials that, that cared about Wes, uh, Andy Van Helman and Dave oh. Newell and all of those guys have had, had their influence upon him. But, I think about Wes's success and I take no credit or any responsibility for it and nor should anyone else, because I'm going to tell you right now what his father said about me is exactly what I think about Wes. He's got the bloodlines. He's got it. It's in him. And uh, he's just fulfilling the destiny that he was born to, to be in. That's, that's my thought. Is there anything he does, by the way, on the ice that even makes you laugh? Well, it's interesting because I understand why he is how he is. Because of the fact that he is, uh, you know, singularly preemptive and and out there. And the Mm -hmm. fact is that I worked the first game where they mic'd us. It was a game in Jersey, an exhibition game. And John came and John McCauley came and he said, I want you to be yourself out there. And and wherever you call a penalty, it flip the switch and announce it. And, and, you know, I I was at the, at at the, uh, the Wright brothers stage and Wes is, Wes is in the Werner Von Brown stage. He's in the, he's in the rocket end of it. And now it's like part of the show and, and it's, it's, it's good, but a, a lot of people don't understand it. And I understand it. He does it the way he does it because he's so enthusiastic about the game. He loves the game. And the fact is that (laughs) it also, and people wouldn't get this unless I tell you, it's a way to reduce the stress of the moment. Okay. It's like a safety valve. It it releases the stress. And for those few seconds between when he put his arm in the air and blew the whistle and goes over to the penalty box or makes the decision, whatever way it is, and then makes that announcement, it, 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 it changes the mood. And it almost quenches the fire in a sense. It, it suppresses all the, the emotion and everybody's just sort of waiting to see what he's going to do. And I, I think it's a good tool for him. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a natural tool. He didn't invent it. It's just him being him. Any final thoughts about uh, the Macaulay family? They've had a profound influence on your life and, and the Macaulay name, your, your son. I mean, I'm sure he understands what that name means. That Macaulay name, that's, that's your oldest son. I, I don't think anyone could ever say that a day goes by that I don't think of the Macaulay family because I, I, I talked to my son, he's in school in, in Minnesota and he referees and I have Wes gave me one of his dad's sweaters 
and occasionally I let Macaulay wear it because it is his name. But oh. when I when when I was a little when I was a younger parent and my little boy was was just young, I would walk down the hall and say, Macaulay, time to go. <laughs> and how can you not think every day about the fellow that I named him after? My wife and I, you know, love our son, but there's always a secret story. And whenever people say, what, what's, his son, what's your son's name? I said, McCall. Right. They yeah. love that. And they go, oh, like the actor. No, no. No. <laughs> no, no. And Macaulay John. I mean, and in, in, in a way, talking to my son, he gets it too. And he had a picture of John in his room. And a lot of, a lot of the understanding of the history is is well entrenched in him and it's it to me it's just a thank you and a sign of respect for a family that yeah that i have a great a great affection for and a great gratitude to thank you as well uh paul for um sharing some of your insights and your story about about the Macaulays. Just two quick other questions, two different topics, Detroit-related. Red Wings GM Steve Eiserman, in your book, You Want to Go, you paint that rather unflattering picture of Eiserman's on-ice behavior. I wrote that story, one of our most popular stories. Do you have any other comments uh, since our story ran? The fact of the matter is that when we interacted, I reacted to the way that he treated people. You, You treat people the way you get treated. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the fact of the matter is that I played on teams with Mark Messier and I played against Gretzky's first game and I've been around the game a long time and my family's got a Stanley Cup on the shelf. So, you know, here's the deal. When you start trashing one of my linesmen, just remember the reason why I made it to the NHL was I always stood up for my teammates. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I'm not interested in a vendetta and I wasn't interested in anything else. All I was interested in was doing the job. I used to go into that rink. I knew Jimmy Devlano. I knew all the coaches. I, I wasn't interested in not uh, having their respect, but the fact of the matter is that I reacted to the way that I was treated and my linesmen were treated. And, you know, they can rewrite and repaint history all they want, any way they want. Uh, Eisenman, Shanahan, all of those guys have their opinion. That's great. But the fact of the matter is they don't like me because I told them the truth and they don't like, a lot of guys don't like the truth. But the fact of the matter is that I was on the ice with Gordy Howe and Bobby Howe and I knew Jean Beliveau. And if this guy's in the oak of them, then act like it. And when you start trashing and peeing on people and it it was specifically about one of the linesmen one night, I just, I just flared up. He didn't act like a captain to me. He didn't act like a leader. He acted like a spoiled guy, and I didn't like it. And you know what? doesn't bother me. And I'm not interested in a vendetta. He's got his job to do. He's got to take a team and run it. The the former general manager was my teammate, Kenny Holland. So, you know, I got plenty of knowledge about what goes on and what doesn't go on. But it's funny. When Mr. Illich used to see me, there was never any mention about me and Eisenman. Hmm. He saw the game, and I went out and gave him an honest effort. And when I got inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, I said this, and I mean it. I gave you 100% every night. I didn't give you 90. I didn't give you 110. I gave you my whole self, and I gave you honesty. And that's it. 
And as far as I'm concerned, I wish Steve Eisenman and the Detroit Red Wings very, very much good luck. I have no, no vendetta, no negative feelings. But when people ask me about what my relationship was with, with him, with Lindros, with Chris Gratton, or anybody else that I didn't feel was respectful, I, I don't mind telling them the truth. And finally, uh, Paul, uh, we just talked with Little Caesars coach Manon Riom, who you said you met uh, uh, when she was uh, uh, in the rollerblading league. She was the first female goalie in 1992. Uh, you've talked about uh, the potential of the first NHL female referee. There's four female refs in the NBA right now. What are your thoughts about will we ever see, when will we see uh, a woman uh, NHL official? Listen, officiating takes judgment. It takes patience. It takes a good knowledge. It takes experience, but it lastly takes courage. So I, I could get on the list of a lot of women that are heroes and Rosa Parks was a hero and, and our heroine and, and Eleanor Roosevelt was a heroine and, and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I can get on the list and I can get on the list of Billie Jean King and athletes that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. were, were great heroes. I, I think if a person is capable of officiating, they've got to have the, the tools. They've got to be able to skate. They've got to have good positioning. They've got to have eyesight. They've got to have judgment. But the most important thing is they have to have acceptability. And until we get a place where management decides that it matters more to have a, a good official versus an XY or a YY chromosome, it, it, just, it just is going to be a time. But I've been with and I've coached a lot of women who officiate, and I've seen them. Mm -hmm. And they, they care just as much when they put their arm in the air and blow the whistle as any guy that it was a good call. And so I think that, that it's ultimately hockey's always been a little slow on the trigger, but ultimately it's going to come. And the fact is it's not coming because it's the social thing to do. It's going to come because it's the right thing to do. Thank you again for your time today, sharing your thoughts about the uh, Macaulay's. That was certainly the focus of our interview. Also talking briefly about Steve Eiserman and the future of female referees. We wish you all the best. You said you have uh, hip surgery coming up and you thought that was ironic for a guy who shot from the hip that you're having that replaced. But thanks. <laughs> thanks again for your time and spending some time with us on the podcast. Thank you, Mark. And I just want to say this, um, you know, it, it didn't sit well with me that I had a, a, a rocky relationship with some of the players and I'm mm -hmm. sorry it happened, but I was who I am and I am who I was. And the fact of the matter is that I don't apologize for anything I did because I did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. And people that listen to this should understand one thing. Have you ever caught on to the symbolism of a referee sweater? It's black and white. It's yes and no. I told this to Putin. It's done yet. It's, it's the way you have to live. And my wife, she deserves sainthood. I'll tell you why. She's been living with a guy for 23 years and only had two crayons in his box, black and white. And to me, the right way is the only way. Again, our thanks to Paul Stewart, Ted, Steve Eiserman, and moving forward, the Wings, as you mentioned in your story in Friday's paper, they have approximately $9.5 million of cap space. And we've talked about the possibility of trades with teams 
they're up against the cap, the ones that we talked about, the Lightning, Golden Knights, and Islanders. You looked at 10 players, forwards like Tyler Johnson, Alex Kalorn, and Max Pacioretty, as well as defensemen like Andy Green and Sammy Vatten. And what's likely to happen, do you think, between now and when camp begins in three or four weeks? Mark, I wouldn't be shocked if Steve Eiserman gets one more player mm-hmm. either through trade or find a free agent who hasn't signed yet. Think about the trade, though, Mark. I mean, obviously, Tampa's the big team out there that everybody's talking about. They're going to have to mm-hmm. find two prominent players. But I don't know, Mark. When you look over those players and their contract details, boy, you're going to be married to like a Taylor, Tyler Johnson or any mm-hmm. of those we mentioned today, the Ger- Yanni Gurde and Alex Kalorn and Tyler Johnson. Well, you're going to be married to them for three or four years at a four or $5 million cap hit every year. They're all in that 28 to 31, 32 age bracket. Mm. It better be a really good sweetener. Let me tell you, you better get another prospect or two or a couple of prime draft picks or whatnot, because those not, Let's face it, I think all three of those players are basically overpaid at this point. Let's be blunt. I mean, mm-hmm. so can they help your team? Sure, to a certain extent, I guess. But I guess if you add on a couple of sweeteners, that makes it a lot more digestible. And there's a couple of free agents out there that are I've always been intrigued by, I mean, the two different, Sammy Vanton and Andrew Green, I think both of those are Good defensemen in their own right. They're, I think they they can help any team. You'd be it'd be interested to see if a guy like Andy Green, Green would be willing to come home for a few months. Mm-hmm. Is from the Trenton area, and then you know that's another piece you can flip at the trade deadline. Um, Vatnin's been a top four defenseman for a lot of teams. He's injury prone. I just threw Max Pacioretty out there. Now the Wings aren't going to be in that market, but. Mm-hmm. Some team, some contender. Again, I mean, if Vegas is strapped against the cap, a guy like Pacioretty, who has, what, I think three years at $7 million left for a contender who may have a little wiggle room, if you can add him plus another prospect or whatnot, I'd, I'd certainly look into it. I mean, he's had a really nice season rebound somewhat this past season. There's going to be movement. Mm-hmm. There's still some a lot of good talent out there. I threw Andreas Athanasiu in there. I don't think the Wings, obviously, at this point, they've that's not of interest to them. They've, but boy, if you're maybe a Tampa or some team like that, would you be willing just for a million dollar? You know, a million sure. dollars. Yeah, I, I he's a he's a guy who's scored thirty goals in this league. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a very bad season last year all the way around, but I think he'd be well worth the gamble for a contender. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, interesting player movement here in the next few weeks, hopefully when the season starts. And, Ted, any final thoughts on the roster? Without getting too specific right now, there's the five new free agents. There's Mark Stahl. You're right. They could pick up somebody like Tyler Johnson, they could make a deal with Julian Breezebois and maybe pick up some of the salary, maybe expose Johnson in the expansion draft, maybe move them at the deadline. There's so many moving parts. 
what are your thoughts though about this roster right now with that potential addition? And I think you're right. It does make sense that they could work something out in the short term. Uh, Andy Green or Alex Kalorn in the lineup would be right. uh, a huge boost to the team. And again, put more expectations on Jeff Blaschel and his staff. Well, another part to that though, Mark, is interesting. If when you when you look back to the realignment, I mean. They're, if they're in the same division with a Chicago, Columbus, Florida, mm-hmm. actually, you kind of think they could be somewhat competitive. I mean, I think this the roster, the way it's configured right now, mm-hmm. they could win some games if they're playing regularly against Chicago, Columbus. Let's say I don't know about well, we don't know any more about Minnesota, but I don't think they're far off that level. I mean, actually. And again, is it a mirage? I mean, I don't know if they're really that good over an 82-game season, whether they're really that good of a team. But I don't know. They're housed with teams like Florida, Chicago. Columbus has issues right now. Ted, it makes a lot of sense. And and four teams make it. Dallas has some injuries. Absolutely. A lot of games they play against those teams. Dallas is banged up at the start of the season. Tell you what, Mark, I mean – Granted, over any two games, seems like we said this roster probably wouldn't win a ton of games. Right. But in this current configuration, 56 games or whatnot against playing only these X number of teams in the division, they can win some games. So, I mean, I don't think they'd still be in the top four, but I don't know. And then that, that kind of creates its own issues because then you're drafting much later in the draft and whatnot. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I think they can be competitive in that new real somewhat competitive in that new realignment again it'll be interesting to see exactly what the final 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 version of the realignment will be but i don't know that list that we saw the day before the way that this roster is configured right now i think they're going to win their fair share of games i would think i mean they're definitely on par with the chicago's and the close to the florida's so, but then again, here's another problem. So, it is, I mean, one in quotation marks problem. Do you really want to be that good? And then <laughs> fall down the draft list and whatnot. But that's, an, that's another issue for another day. And that'll do it then for today's podcast. We'll be back before training camp. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you soon.